Seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. You'll never have the sacred stone. <laughs> oh, this new crazy mother. Welcome to the Dead Pundits Society. Welcome, everybody, to today's episode of Dead Pundit Society. I'm your host, as always, Adam Proctor. I'm going to be joined in just a few moments by Timothy Gill. Tim Gill is an assistant professor of criminology and sociology at the University of North Carolina in Wilmington, and he has written a number of pieces about the political and economic crisis in Venezuela over the past several years. He himself did his dissertation research in Venezuela, studying the political nature of foreign aid, particularly U.S. aid, and what that project has done to destabilize socialist governments in the region over the past several decades. So he's just the man to talk to when it comes to this media spectacle that unfolded at the border between Venezuela and Colombia this past weekend. Juan Guaido and Senator Marco Rubio have been thumping their chests on social media, calling for U.S. foreign intervention in order to overthrow the Maduro regime in Venezuela. There are a number of opinions on the U.S. left about the Venezuelan situation, about the Bolivarian revolution, about Chavez, about Maduro, about all of it. I think that well-intentioned and principled socialists can disagree on some things when it comes to this particular situation. But I want to be clear and I want to foreground our conversation before we get started with today's interview. That Tim Gill and I are going to lay out three demands that the international left must fall behind with no questions asked, no ifs, ands, or buts. That's first of all, no intervention, either covert or overt, from the United States. That's first and foremost, hands off Venezuela, full stop. Secondly, there is indeed an economic, political, and monetary crisis in Venezuela, and the people are suffering. So what we need to see is multilateral aid coming from the agencies inside the United Nations and the Red Cross in order to get the people of Venezuela the food and the medicine that they so desperately need. And lastly, the United States must lift all sanctions against Venezuela. The experience of sanctions in Iraq and Iran and many other places have shown that they most severely impact the poor and working classes of those countries and not the political elites that they are supposed to be targeting. So number one, no intervention, hands off Venezuela. Number two, multilateral international aid coming from the Red Cross in order to help the people of Venezuela who need it the most. Number three, we demand an end to all sanctions coming from the United States towards Venezuela. And uh, those three demands, I think, round out the most important things that need to be addressed right now in this situation. So in the coming interview, Tim Gill is going to talk to us about the political, economic, social, and foreign policy related context of the Venezuelan situation. Certainly not all of you will agree with the specifics of some of his analysis, and that's just fine. We need a robust debate on the left. However, I would suggest that you guys should be pretty patient with this. Here's a guy who's studied Venezuela quite intensely. He spent quite a bit of time over there, and uh, I submit that he might know what he's talking about, at least to some extent. Anyway, I hope this kicks off some spirited and comradely debates going forward. I look forward to that. So before we get to the interview, just a quick reminder that this episode, as with all of our episodes, is brought to you by patrons of the Dead Pundit Society. If you like what we do here on DPS and you want to support this mission, head over to patreon.com slash deadpundits and smash that subscribe button. We have a number of generous rewards that we offer to our patrons uh, to try to further their education and get them uh, participating in the project. Later this week, we're going to be launching a forum It's going to be exclusive to DPS patrons. It's going to be, I think, I'm just going to say it right now. I'm calling it. It's going to be one of the most valuable resources on the internet when it comes to democratic socialist politics. I'm really excited to connect our knowledgeable patrons together so they can talk about the strategies that they're using in the real world to build this socialist project. So everybody head over to patreon.com slash deadpundits and support this project. We appreciate you patrons past and present. Ayer estuvo el diablo aquí. En este mismo lugar huele a azufre todavía. Ayer el señor presidente de los Estados Unidos a quien yo llamo el diablo vino aquí hablando como dueño del mundo. 
un psiquiatra no estaría de más para analizar el discurso de ayer del presidente de los Estados Unidos. Joining us on the line today is Tim Gill. Tim is an assistant professor in the Department of Sociology and Criminology at the University of North Carolina at Wilmington. He is the author of many articles concerning Venezuela and the situation of foreign aid and, quote, democracy promotion coming from the United States. So he's just the man that we need to talk to to break down this situation in Venezuela. He has a recent piece in Counterpunch that we're going to be talking about. I'll link to that in the show notes. It's called Why is the Venezuelan Government Rejecting U.S. Food Supplies? Tim Gill, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Adam. So as you mentioned at the opening of your piece that has appeared in Counterpunch last week, you write, there's no denying that a serious economic and humanitarian crisis faces Venezuela. Of course, interpretations of that crisis are going to vary wildly, not only on the right versus left end of the political spectrum, but also within the left. You see a number of different interpretations arising about the nature of the Maduro government, not only the, the decisions that they have made over the past several years, both in terms of monetary policy, you know, sort of political strategy, economic strategy, and all the rest of it, but also whether or not uh, the Maduro government at this point has uh, de democratic legitimacy any longer in the wake of some of the elections that have transpired over the past couple of years. So you study Venezuela. You've done quite a bit of research there. You are the man to talk to on this matter. Give us a brief overview of the Venezuelan crisis over the past couple of years, if you don't mind to open things up. Yeah, no problem. I think, as you mentioned, there is a uh, severe political economic crisis facing Venezuela. Politically, many don't accept the legitimacy of Nicolas Maduro. He was the hand-picked successor of Hugo Chavez, who died in 2003. Chavez uh, passes away. Nicolas Maduro comes to take over the presidency of Venezuela. There's election held in 2013. I think there it's um, pretty clear that uh, Nicolas Maduro won. There aren't any, I am not convinced by any evidence that there was any sort of serious fraud, let's say, in that election. Certainly people have criticized, as they did under Chavez, the electoral conditions, uh, things such as, you know, the uh, Chavez abusing time on public television, going over the uh, uh, allotted time that the government should have been allowed to utilize, things like using state funds, for the campaign, things like that aren't all that transparent, how the state, you know, how Chavez and then Maduro have been using state funds, oil revenue to fund their campaigns. In 2013, it's pretty clear that Maduro defeats uh, Capriles, although the margin is much uh, smaller than, you know, Chavez ran against him in 2012, beat him by something like 10 percentage points, if I recall correctly. And then Maduro uh, only beats Capriles by by a point uh, and a half, which is significant in the context of the U.S. You know, we often have very close margins um, in presidential and other elections. So, you know, some called this a razor thin margin. You know, it certainly wasn't a razor thin margin, but it was very different than Chavez versus Capriles in the uh, earlier year. Now, this previous election that takes place last year for the presidency, Capriles ran against Henry Falcone from Democratic Action. There are serious concerns about the legitimacy of this election, particularly, once again, the conditions surrounding the election. So it's not as if, you know, the ballot boxes were straight up stuffed, although there was an instance of fraud that's been documented in the state, I believe it's Boulevard, of some fraud that seemingly went on. But it's really the electoral conditions that uh, individuals take issue with, the fact that some opposition leaders, Enrique Capriles, Leopoldo Lopez, were banned from uh, competing in the election, that there were new sort of registration requirements for uh, opposition political parties to participate in the elections. Once again, there's use of state funds for Maduro's campaign. So there are all these sorts of issues, these conditions surrounding elect the election that led folks to say, you know, this is illegitimate. Um, some of these opposition parties should be allowed to part, uh, should these leaders should be allowed to participate. There shouldn't be these onerous requirements on opposition parties um, and all the rest of it. So the opposition, many members boycotted the election, although there was still an individual that ran. So in January, just last month, Maduro sort of the, the second term uh, began. 
And the opposition controls the National Assembly right now. And the opposition agreed to sort of a rotating cast of leaders of the of the National Assembly. And so during this particular term, if you were at will, this session, popular will, which is Leopoldo Lopez's uh, political party, had their choice of a leader of the National Assembly. And that leader is Juan Guaido. And Juan Guaido, you know, it's not altogether clear, you know, who initially developed a strategy and all the rest of it. But the opposition strategy under popular will, under Guaido, was to invoke this uh, article of the Constitution and basically assert that since the election of Maduro was characterized by some of these, as I mentioned before, these conditions, these unfair conditions, um, that Maduro shouldn't be allowed to rightfully assume the presidency. And so as a result, Juan Guaido has, uh, you know, there was under this article, the opposition is now claiming that Juan Guaido is the uh, should assume the presidency of Venezuela. And then, as we've seen, the U.S. within, I think, within an hour, maybe even within 30 minutes, recognized Juan Guaido as the president of Venezuela. And then many countries around the hemisphere, Brazil, Argentina, as well as some countries in Europe and beyond um, Albania and Kosovo right away. And then some countries thereafter. There are still many countries around the world that haven't really take either publicly taken aside and some that still recognize, of course, Maduro, particularly China and Russia, and then allies in the region, Bolivia, uh, Cuba. So you have this standoff, you know, as you say, this impasse with some countries around the world recognizing Guaido, other countries around the world recognizing Maduro. And obviously, you know, Maduro still still controls the military, um, still controls many, you know, the state apparatus. And over the weekend, there was sort of a, you know, there was a real challenge to whether or not Maduro still retains control or whether Guaido and his allies could chip away at military support and demonstrate further legitimacy. So the standoff really, you know, what was going on, the U.S. flew some provisions, medicinal and food provisions to Colombia and in the wake of this economic crisis, you know, which I, I haven't touched uh, touched on too much, but yes, there's our shortages of food. What food is available is very expensive. Individuals have lost weight. There's very dire conditions in uh, hospitals. You know, people don't have regular access to antibiotics, gauze, you name it. So, you know, in terms of access to food, in terms of access to medicine, it is indeed a dire situation. A lot of this goes back to the fact that Venezuela is reliant upon oil. The price of oil has plummeted. They never really diversified their economy away from oil. They don't aren't getting any earnings from as much earnings as they had before previously when oil price of, of a barrel of oil was much higher. So they don't have as much money to give to in, uh, importers in the country that would import medicine and goods and all the rest of it. And there's a great deal of corruption. And, you know, we can certainly talk about all of that uh, if you'd like. So the situation is that the U.S., flew these medical and food provisions to, to Colombia and said they wanted to deliver them to Guaido, the rightful uh, president, and that he was going to distribute this food and medicine amid um, the crisis. Now, Maduro has said that, you know, look, I'm still the president. The U.S. has enacted several rounds of sanctions against our government. They don't recognize me as the president. This is going to be delivered by USAID, which has a, a history of intervention within Venezuela and other countries around the region. So we're not going to accept this. So it was sort of a standoff. You know, the, the opposition wanted to get this food over the border. They wanted the military to turn against Maduro. Or in the least, if those didn't work, to try to demonstrate that Maduro is this brutal dictator who, amid this crisis, isn't going to let this food in. So we saw a little, you know, we saw some defections from the military, nothing really uh, wide ranging. And the aid didn't really get through. Um, but the opposition is claiming, you know, you, you know, they're claiming that Maduro is so brutal that he wouldn't even let in these medical and food provisions. He's blocking them from getting to the people. So to a certain extent, I guess the opposition succeeded in trying to, you know, bring those optics to light, I guess. But then Maduro succeeded, of course and blocking the aid and ensuring that the military didn't, um, that large segments of the military didn't defect from, uh, from him. So that's kind of where we're at right now. So Senator Marco Rubio from Florida has been down there playing 
you know, I don't know, uh, Rambo, baby Rambo or something. You know, if you watch his Twitter <laughs> feed, he's he's really uh, sure. big on his sort of self-image down there right now. You know, I think uh, Trump infamously called him little Marco during the campaign. And, <laughs> and I, you know, as, as other commentators have mentioned who are currently down there, you know, he probably feels like a very big boy now these days. Uh, Marco Rubio does being very, you know, partisan uh, in favor of the opposition. He himself is a counter-revolutionary, you might say, very conscientiously so, not only in, in Venezuela, but also in Cuba and, and elsewhere, representing many of the, you know, the migrants from both of those countries in the state of Florida, being being as it is, this kind of uh, the safe haven for the former bourgeoisies of, <laughs> of uh, post-colonial countries, regimes. Sure. But in any case, Rubio is down there making a lot of hay. If you pay any attention to his Twitter feed, you, you would think that uh, you know there are these mass defections. That I believe he mentioned there were 27, according to his Twitter feed. Uh, can't check up on that. 27 defections from the army. Uh, there was a food aid truck that was set on fire. There's some pictures showing that it was actually opposition forces who did that, trying to stage a photo op. So, needless to say, there's a, there's a, this is this is a primarily. Um, I mean, I you know I think uh, Jean Baudrillard would. Uh, have a heyday with this in terms of this being uh, waged primarily in the realm of the media and representation. Right. You know, his, his, his famous uh, article, uh, you know, that the Iraq war never happened or something like that. Uh, it, would, it came out in the 1990s. It, it was a, it was a media spectacle uh, represented uh, by way of representations of representations. And so to what extent is that going on down there in Venezuela? Now there is a real crisis indeed, but to what extent is this uh, manufactured? Yeah, I mean, there is a real crisis, and I, I think there's no denying that. I mean, it, it is incredibly dire. Um, the stories that you hear about individuals, um, for example, with diabetes that can't really get access to insulin. I mean, that's, you know, if you can't get access to insulin, you know, it's it's not a situation of, of years. You know, it can be days. It can be just a couple of weeks before you can go into a coma and die. You know, the stories that are coming out about these conditions in the hospitals, about uh, little access to food, whether if it's not there or if it's overpriced. I mean, this is all accurate. I don't think that this is uh, this is not uh, this is not something that's um, manufactured. The weight loss that's going on, there is indeed a crisis. But uh, certainly, this issue on the border um, that went on over the weekend was very much a public spectacle. You know, the aid that the U.S. was going to bring into Venezuela is just a, a drop in the bucket in terms of how to resolve the economic crisis. I mean, I think uh, myself and others have uh, said that if the U.S. was really concerned about, you know, the economic uh, situation, then they should work through the United Nations. Um, they should work multilaterally to get uh, food and medicine to people in Venezuela. It's possible, you know, certainly that individuals in the U.S. government says, you know, as I as I noted in the in the Counterpunch article that they do want, you know, people to have a healthy, dignified existence in Venezuela, um, that they do want to get aid to them. Uh, but it's clear that people like Marco Rubio and elements of the Venezuelan opposition, you know, it doesn't really seem like it was truly about the aid at the end of the day. It was all about the optics. And it was clear. I mean, I think that, you know, anyone would be naive to think that Maduro was just going to let this aid through. From his perspective, as I pointed out in the counterpunch piece, the U.S. is exacerbating this crisis. It has uh, leveled economic sanctions, uh, sort of went nuclear in terms of economic sanctions and uh, leveling them against the state oil company. That is that is the economy of Venezuela. You know, now the uh, Venezuela is, is diversifying, trying to sell more to India, trying to sell more to China. I don't think that it's going to be possible to really make up for what Venezuela was selling, you know, to Citgo and to the U.S. Generally speaking, we'll see what happens. I mean, but what we know about sanctions, whether they were leveled against Iran, um, Iraq, Cuba, is that they hurt poorer populations than they hurt, you know, the states and the military elites that they're supposed to damage, that they're supposed to get out of power. I mean, you know, Zimbabwe staggered on, uh, has staggered on for a very long time, Cuba, Syria, Iran. So, you know, I think that there's there's always this thinking in Washington among policymakers that we must do something, we must do something, and that we have to demonstrate uh, how tough we are, regardless of the effectiveness, regardless of it actually 
if these tactics really do assist poor populations, assist the individuals that are actually being hurt from this crisis, um, I think many, you know, in D.C. and just want to appear tough, want to punish the regime. And so, you know, this was clearly a spectacle. There's no excuse for how the Venezuelan government responded and has been responding with repression in the barrios against protesters, uh, individuals that were killed, firing on indigenous individuals along the border in Brazil. There's absolutely no uh, excuse for that. And um, individuals that are doing that, they should be punished, um, that have uh, killed these unarmed protesters. You know, I very much hope that the Venezuelan government punishes these state forces that are engaged in this sort of repression. But, you know, you have Maduro and you have, peop- you know, others in the U.S. government on the sidelines that are cheering on the protesters, go in there, you know, fight against the military forces and, you know, we'd have to they'd have to be naive to think that, you know, the, the Maduro regime was just going to kindly let them come through um, with the aid. I mean, they said they weren't. We, we knew that that was the case. Again, there's no excuse for the repression. But, you know, there is something a little bit perverse when you have somebody like Marco Rubio, who's on the sidelines, who he's not down there in the streets. He's not the one who's out there protesting. And then, you know, and then in the aftermath, he's posting pictures of Gaddafi and he's posting pictures of Noriega. I mean, he posts this picture, I'm sure, as you, you know, saw of Gaddafi in the street, bloodied him, you know. And so it's not, not just, such a uh, veiled death threat against uh, Maduro, right, I mean, against a sitting, uh, you know, sovereign leader, which, you know, whatever you think of Maduro, you know, to me, what, what I, you know, sort of my response yesterday to that tweet was that, you know, I wonder what the Constitution says about a sitting U.S. senator going abroad, cavorting with, you know, foreign, you know, saboteurs and uh, making death threats against uh, leaders. I mean, whatever you think of Maduro, whatever you think of the situation, there's no question that uh, Marco Rubio is is sort of speaking out of turn in a very serious and profound and unaccountable way. Uh, I don't don't know what his role is there and how that works out. Of course, we've seen this. We've seen McCain in Iran. We've seen others do this. He's not the first for sure. But uh. yeah, I mean, and and I mean, look at the situation in Libya now. Is that is that what is is Marco Rubio? Is that is is that something he's promoting? You know, he wants to turn turn Venezuela into Libya. You have open slave trade and just a complete disastrous, chaotic, uh, failed state uh, with the fall of Gaddafi. So. Yeah, so let's 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 turn and talk about the opposition. There's no question. I want to talk about the complexity of this this situation, but let's talk about the opposition. One of the things that you know I really stumble on here, and one of the things my show takes very seriously is this question uh, of of a, a a sort of transition, a socialist transition. What would that look like in any country or even in the United States? You know, we we have uh, Bernie Sanders, uh, you know, candidacy just been de- 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 declared last week. Someone who is talking very boldly about uh, a political revolution and, and implementing a number of social democratic policies and broadening the kind of democratic participation of the masses in society. And these are things that are you know, already underway in, in countries uh, like Venezuela and have been underway for, for many decades. And so these, the impasses that they find themselves facing right now are, are similar to the types of things that we could foreseeably see in our immediate future if if some of these this this you know political revolution sort of gets legs and and gains steam in any meaningful sense. So talk to me about some of this legal repression that is some some of the people are calling are calling. It's my understanding that the Venezuelan Supreme Court was responsible for disqualifying some of the opposition candidates from standing. So t- talk to me a little bit about that process. Is that correct? Yeah, that is correct. Um, you know, I don't I think that there is some evidence that uh, people like Capriles, um, among mem- other members of the opposition, have been engaged in corruption. I mean, there's also significant evidence that people in the uh, Venezuelan government are involved in corruption. But it seems as if the Supreme Court has really been instrumentalized by the Venezuelan government to target particular members uh, of the opposition. You know, the situation with it regarding Leopoldo Lopez, for instance, there were protests in 2014. Um, they turned violent. He was somebody that was promoting these uh, protests and calling for La Salida, uh, the exit of Maduro. I mean, that's quite provocative, right? I mean, if you had Hillary Clinton or if you had any sort of leader from the Democrats, Bernie Sanders, as you mentioned, that was right now calling for 
the exit of Donald Trump. And let's go into the streets and let's protest and we're calling for the exit. You know, that has some obviously carries some, uh, you know, there's some clear connotations there. I mean, exactly what is meant by the exit. OK, maybe maybe we don't know it. Do we mean violently? Do we mean uh, pacifically? Do we mean, you know, how do exactly do we mean this? But um, so Leopoldo Lopez was indeed uh, arrested. And, you know, if they want to bring uh, charges against them or this, that, the other, that's fine. But the, the way the trial was run uh, was pretty much a sham. My understanding is that Leopoldo Lopez really wasn't allowed to call little if any witnesses and that seemingly the decision had already been made that he was going to be jailed. Um, and then, of course, his conditions, you know, the letters that came out from Leopoldo, what we heard was taking place with his wife when she would go there. Um, you know, the, it is just pretty, uh, pretty awful. There are other, you know, the sort of legal repression going after judges that didn't rule in the way that the government wanted them to rule, going after NGO leaders, going after some journalists. Um, again, this is not to say that some of these opposition leaders weren't perhaps involved in some corruption and all the rest of it, but it's very clear that they, that the government has systematically targeted individuals and, you know, the targeting of NGOs, targeting of journalists is in fact quite scary. Um, I think Maduro, and this has been heightened certainly under uh, Maduro, I think he knows he's unpopular. Um, I think he's, you know, there's no way that he doesn't know that he has, you know, 20% or below uh, favorability rating. And, but I think he's convinced, you know, the, the revolution must soldier on, it must continue at any cost. And, um, you know, I think that it's, uh, uh, he's really damaging the legacy of, um, of anything that we might learn from the Bolivarian revolution or from Chavez and, and, and so forth. I think, you know, one of the difficulties here is kind of threading the needle between, you know, qualified support of the movement that uh, Maduro sort of inherited, as you as you rightly mentioned, with the repression that I think all all sort of democracy loving people of the left or, or just, you know, humanitarians even would find abhorrent. The difficulty here being that, of course, with the legacy of coups and violent right wing you know, overthrows of left-wing governments. The real context here that matters, you know, is it's, it's this difficult question. Of, is, is Maduro a, is he the, the figurative little Dutch boy with his finger in the dam holding back the, the neoliberal, you know, death squads perhaps? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, is, is he the lesser of two uh, evils here? I mean, I think th- these are the real stakes of the debates that we're having amongst ourselves, uh, both in academia and also, you know, in, uh, on the left and just in the political sphere in general. What's your, what's your sort of broader take on that? What's the character of the opposition? What would, what would come about if Maduro stepped aside? Yeah, I mean, it's hard to say exactly what Guaido or what the opposition, you know, what their policies precisely would be. I mean, we have certainly have a better understanding, I think, of what their foreign policy would be. They have obviously warmed towards the U.S. and warmed towards uh, other leaders throughout Latin America and Brazil and Argentina and Western Europe. Um, they seem to you know, Guaido and others have said that uh, in regards, you know, there are all these deals with China and oil promised to China under uh, under the socialists. And so they've been a little bit uh, ambiguous about how their relationship with China would work out. They said, they've said, you know, if these deals were made in a legitimate manner, then they would honor them. But given that many of these deals uh, have been made, you know, in recent years, just by Maduro with no consultation of the National Assembly, it's also quite possible that they could, uh, you know, nick some of these deals with China. It doesn't seem likely that they would warm to Russia or Belarus. Um, so we certainly get a sense of what might go on at the, you know, level of international relations. And this has some bearing, I think, on domestic policy, too. Uh, Guaido has talked about, you know, encouraging private investments. 
Um, you know, Bolton, of course, has talked about private investment into Venezuela as well. Um, could certainly see a reversal of many of the expropriations and nationalization of industry that has went on in Venezuela. But I'm not sure that they could fully reverse the uh, sort of advances of the Bolivarian Revolution, if you will. Um, the fact that now you have state policies brought about by Chavez, which uh, sought to enfranchise poor and working class populations through health care, through subsidized food, through subsidized housing, all these sort of uh, missions. And I think many in the opposition do realize that. Enrique, uh, Enrique Capriles seemingly recognized that a bit more than uh, Guaido has recognized this. Um, you know, the uh, other opposition figures in Primero Estesia, for example, where Capriles has come from, have talked about continuing these sorts of social policies. But I think that they're, you know, they have also pointed to less state intervention into the economy, uh, particularly over the oil industry, which is, you know, the, the powerhouse of, of Venezuela. So, you know, that's, that's sort of the indication. Uh, many have criticized the opposition for a long time for not putting forth, you know, really concrete proposals that could actually appeal to the populace. Chavez, for instance, when he ran initially in the late 1990s and thereafter, had all these concrete proposals about combating economic inequality, combating, you know, savage neoliberalism, promoting participatory democracy. And then in later years, you know, in 2005 onwards, talking about socialist, you know, explicitly socialist sorts of policies. So those are, you know, there are some indications about what the um, what the opposition would do, but it's not altogether clear. Talk to us a little bit about the role of Elliot Abrams in all of this. Mm-hmm. Abrams is a man who has uh, a very uh, barbaric legacy. He's been associated with with uh, you know the worst aspects of uh, these kind of right wing contras and death squads, the way they operated in places like El Salvador and Guatemala and elsewhere. You know, and in comes Elliot Abram as Trump's special envoy to Venezuela, which is a very, you know, right. ab, you know, who know, who knows exactly what uh, duties and roles and responsibilities are entailed therein. Abrams, of course, perjured himself and, and uh, participated in some really shady dealings in the 1980s, getting weapons and money and war materiel into counter-revolutionaries in Central and South America in various capacities. So it doesn't bode well for the you know the uh, a peaceful resolution i would say in venezuela that a man like elliot abrams is involved yeah i think you're exactly right i mean it's downright absurd i mean i think that that they have elliot abrams in there it's like a parody i mean it's it's just an it's i, I can't for the life of me in in many ways make sense of why they would out of all the people that you could assign uh, to Venezuela, why would you pick this man? I mean, so many individuals have pointed out that you know, given the U.S.'s legacy of intervention and, you know, conceiving of Latin America as one's backyard and engaging in these uh, coup efforts and supporting coups and supporting military dictatorships. And here you have this man who, as you mentioned, he was supportive of dictatorial regimes, particularly um, in Central America. He was supportive of the counter-revolutionary, the Contras in Nicaragua and funneling money and weapons and he's a criminal. Um, so, I mean, it's the, I would think that is the last person. If you want to send a message to Venezuela that, um, and to other countries around the region, um, and not sort of, uh, tarnish efforts, uh, towards some sort of negotiation or some sort of dialogue, this would be the last person that you would want to choose. And yet they chose this individual, which leads me to think that perhaps there was something why they would choose him. It seems like I mean, just look at Rubio's tweets. It seems that they're doing a lot in the way of trying to scare the Maduro regime. I think that, you know, I I don't see military intervention as something that I don't I mean, I think we are inching closer. I think that Trump and people in the Trump administration surely would probably like Maduro to leave without having to expend as much energy as possible. I think that they are trying to the only thing that makes sense to me is that they are deliberately trying to scare people in the military um, from abandoning the Maduro government. You know, why else would you tweet out these pictures of Noriega? Why else would you tweet out these pictures of Gaddafi? Why why in the world would you bring in this dinosaur, uh, Elliot Abrams, as you know, you mentioned, and everyone knows 
is has been uh, supportive of these horrific governments, if not seemingly, I think, to scare Maduro and to particularly to scare the military members from abandoning Maduro, siding with Guaido and, you know, essentially overthrowing uh, Maduro. Now, to what extent? I mean, I think you, you bringing in Abrams and, and uh, you know, you mentioned we've talked quite a bit about Marco Rubio's tweets. The, the, what what seems what, what I want to be very careful of throughout the presentation of this uh, this crisis that we're, we're we're sort of engaged in here is I want to be sure that we're not you know unwittingly giving into this kind of Venezuelan exceptional exceptionalism that it is an exceptional case of human suffering and degradation and all the rest of it and, and you may push back on this a little bit but I want to be sure that I'm 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 not um, I want to win over some of my comrades <laughs> some, of my, <laughs> some of my colleagues inside the left who have a much more kind of principled pro Maduro stance. I, I want, I want, right. I, I, you know, I, I come on over to this side, you guys, you know, we, 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 we understand that, that, you know, I mean, one of the things that was brought to mind when you're talking about the rationing of insulin is, you know, I, there was a story in Texas right, where, where right. a 20 something year old unbeknownst to his parents or his mother in any way was rationing insulin because he was thrown off of his health insurance and he was out of work. And it turns out, yeah, you can't do that for very long. And he died. He fell into a diabetic uh, coma and, and he passed away. And, and, you know, his mother was horrified that he had to do this uh, thing in, in a state, in a country as wealthy as America. And of course our healthcare system is broken and people die and suffer and there's misery and rationing of food and medical supplies everywhere, not for lack of supplies, but for lack of of money to afford uh, the prices uh, to to continue fattening the the pockets of uh, of these executives and and the, and the one percent. So you know, talk to me a little bit about that. You know, to what extent are we potentially falling prey to making Venezuela a special case? And and to what extent uh, is there a unique crisis that has actually been you know uh, the result of corruption? and uh, top-down mistaken administration or what have you. Yeah, I mean, I want to say I think that you uh, mentioned something quite interesting, and that is that there are a lot of pro-Maduro individuals out there, you know, on the left, readers of Counterpunch, readers of uh, The Nation. What kind of, what should I say, not that it frightens me, but I think that there needs to be I think some on the left think that, you know, perhaps just because they might be on the left and because they support Maduro and they have a soft spot for the Bolivarian revolution, they're automatically critical thinkers. But you also have to be a critical thinker on the left. I don't think that you should just give in to knee-jerk anti-imperialist dispositions. You know, um, I'm very critical of imperialism in, in my work, but I don't think that just because Maduro and the Venezuelan governments have challenged U.S. imperialism, that means that, you know, if you're on the left, you should champion um, Maduro. You know, you do find this among some as well that want to applaud Putin in particular ways. I mean, this guy is a total homophobic despot, in, in my opinion, that that we know that there's electoral fraud. It might be that the population, you know, it might be that he could win a legitimate election, but he's not ruling in a legitimate way. And so why, you know, why support this homophobic uh, individual who cracks down on protesters, who cracks down on NGOs and all the rest of it. And so, you know, I do think that there has to be, you know, I, I think there's no secret that Venezuela, Hugo Chavez, um, the Bolivarian Revolution for a long, for the last two decades has been sort of the darling child of the anti-imperialist left. And there's a lot of hesitance, I think, on the left for individuals. They, they don't want to. Um, it's, it's like they're attached to the symbolism of of uh, Venezuela and to the legacy of Chavez and all the rest of it. But I think that, you know, you have to look at this situation in a more objective, realistic um, and more just more critically. I mean, just because Maduro, just because Chavez criticized neoliberalism and, criti and again, criticized U.S. imperialism doesn't mean that we should just uncritically accept their rule. You know, there's many people I've met over the years, you know, from sort of uh, upper white, up, upper class individuals from New England who have told me, you know, while I was doing my research in Venezuela that, you know, now is not the time for criticism. You know, not, we just need to accept uh, the, the socialist government and express solidarity with them. And now you see this, too, with the opposition in Guaido. You know, a lot of these articles that I've written, you know, I get a lot of pushback on Twitter from individuals, you know, that basically, you know, why, why are you criticizing Guaido? 
even when in many instances, I'm not simply I'm drawing out the relationship that Guaido has uh, that his the movements that he was part of, the student movements, yeah. um, as well as the opposition has had with the U.S. If you're supportive of Guaido and you're supportive of the opposition, then you should be happy that the U.S. was supporting him. Um, I think some are taking it to say that, you know, I'm saying that they're a puppet and this, that, the other, which is not what I've said, you know. But, you know, again, I think that we have to think about these issues critically. I mean, you know, think about some of who Maduro's main allies are and who Chavez allied with. I mean, he allied with Zimbabwe. He allied uh, with Syria. He allied with Russia. Uh, he allied with China. I mean, these are, you know, uh, despite human rights, I think, you know, for at least the time, human rights appeared, derechos uh, humanos, in the Venezuelan constitution more than any constitution, other other existing constitutions. So how can you be uh, respectful of human rights, but then you're allied with all these, uh, you know, they're human rights violators. I mean, this is not to say that the U.S. and other countries don't do this as well. They do. Saudi Arabia and Azerbaijan and all these countries that uh, the U.S. has been allied with because of, you know, whatever their stances are on the war on terror and this and that. So I just wanted to make that note. You know, I think that people should, you know, they should, should they should express a little bit more of a critical disposition towards what's going on in Venezuela. And instead of thinking in terms of maybe, you know, Maduro versus the empire, I mean, I think we should, we need to also think about the citizens and what do the citizens want? You know, if this is a democratic socialist government, then the citizens, then we need to uh, be sure we're focused on this issue of, of the democratic elements. I mean, not just the socialist element, however conceived, but I think the step democratic element too. Is Maduro who the people want? And, you know, also what is left of the Bolivarian revolution? If individuals are losing weight, considerable amounts of weight, if people are rationing food, by most accounts, you know, people I talk to, friends that uh, have been there as recently as, you know, a couple of weeks ago, that, you know, people are losing weight, people are rationing food, people are making very little money. It's a very different situation than what we saw under Hugo Chavez. And there is a great deal of corruption. And that's seemingly why Maduro hasn't wanted to, you know, they understand the sense is that that's why Maduro hasn't made serious economic changes, because there are individuals that are making some money off these economic distortions, particularly people in the military that are now in control of food and uh, military distribution. So, yeah. Uh, so, 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 so there's, guess, some, there's some class conflict in, in, at the heart of this kind of state bureaucracy that's that's leading uh, the, to this underclass to suffer exponentially. I think, I mean, that's that that's an argument that I can get behind, you know, you know, because immediately I'm, I'm sort of thinking to myself, ah, yes, well, isn't this, you know, isn't this primarily the responsibility of the sanctions and the sort of economic uh, isolation that has been visited upon Venezuela and other countries, you know, since the days of the axis of evil. Um, right, right. And, and even long before then, but certainly that's starting then. Um, but of course, you you know, this cla- kind of class conflict within the Bolivarian revolution, uh, at least the, the bureaucratized version of it, what has uh, what had, it has become is something that I think all socialists should be very aware of, right? That this a state apparatus is not this kind of abstract thing that lords over people. It's it's a, a, a an unstable compromise of various classes and class fractions that operate in a variety of ways, and you see those classes and those fractions coming into conflict, and you know sometimes they're fattening them their their pockets while the rest of or while the rest of us are are, are losing weight and rationing food and, and and medical supplies, as you say. So I think you know basically the TLDR here, folks, the too long didn't read. I think both can be true, wouldn't you say? Both both stories can be true. That on the one hand we have just a completely violent and abhorrent case of, of U.S. imperialism being visited upon uh, the Venezuelan people. And on the other hand, you have a class of bureaucrats that have emerged uh, from the remnants of the Bolivarian Revolution that have been at the top of the state that are perpetuating uh, uh, the suffering. So, you know, between equal rights, as uh, the old man once said, uh, force decides. Right, right. So we're, we we find ourselves at an impasse here. Let's talk about the way that impasse has taken shape most specifically with respect to food aid. And this is really your wheelhouse. You study kind of aid and, quote, democracy promotion. Right. Now, it's my understanding that the Red Cross has recently denounced the way in which this this aid is being administered and delivered. Is that correct? And if so, kind of uh, talk correct. to us about the the kind of – 
the, the months-long trajectory of this standoff at the border from last weekend? Yeah, both the UN and uh, the Red Cross have leveled criticism against what the U.S. is doing right now. I mean, it's very clear in the in the basis of that criticism is the politicization of uh, humanitarian assistance, the politicization of foreign aid. You know, as I, I as I mentioned before, many have said, you know, if the U.S. is truly concerned primarily about the health and welfare of Venezuelan citizens, okay, well, why are they leveling sanctions against the government? You know, again, this uh, economic crisis precedes the economic sanctions. It's not, the U.S. didn't create this situation with economic uh, sanctions. In fact, you know, the U.S. for a long time has been if you really think about it, the money that it's that, you know, the the, the through the purchase of uh, oil, petroleum has really buoyed the Bolivarian revolution. I mean, Sitgo, Valero, you know, some of these gas stations in the U.S., that's where a lot of money goes into. That's where a lot of the, the Venezuelan state's money has come from. So for a long time, you know, the U.S. has been providing money, um, you know, U.S. corporations to um, the Venezuelan government. I mean, you have an odd situation right now where the Venezuelan government has promised a lot of oil to both China and to Russia. And they, you know, for previous uh, money that were previous loans that were provided to the Venezuelan government. So there were sort of these oil for loan deals. So a lot of the oil that's currently and has been currently going to China and Russia, you know, it was already paid for a long time ago. And so some listeners and others have to think about this on their own, but some see this as sort of a neocolonial, a new sort of neocolonial relationship between China and Venezuela, you know, all, you know, with Venezuela promising all its natural wealth to China for loans in advance. Certainly, there are different ways of looking at it. So again, these the, the economic crisis precedes these uh, U.S. sanctions. Nonetheless, these U.S. sanctions, you know, this is sort of the nuclear option that's always been talked about for two decades, but no one ever approached it. That is cutting off funds to the state oil company in Venezuela. You know, Citgo can still sell oil in the U.S., but it can't transfer money back to the Venezuelan, the state oil company and to the Venezuelan government, to Maduro. So that is sort of the nuclear option. I mean, there's a next step. I guess you could pressure other countries like the U.S. has done with Iran, other countries throughout the world not to do business with Venezuela. I suspect that, you know, today, apparently there's going to be some new measures uh, announced by Pence and others. Um, I suspect that it's possible, you know, that something like that could uh, pop up. Yeah, but the situation again here is that, you know, the U.S., at the same time, they're punishing uh, the Venezuelan government, the Venezuelan economy, and certainly uh, poor citizens in Venezuela. They're saying, OK, you know, now let's play hero and we're going to send some supplies to Colombia and we want to get them across the border. OK, well, these are coming from USAID, which has historically sought to bolster the opposition, get the socialists out of power. And the U.S. wants to try to benefit from these optics at the global stage so everybody can see the U.S. again as this sort of hero that's, you know, promoting the rights of the poor when others, Maduro and certainly many, you know, the Red Cross, the United Nations, many Venezuelanists, um, people that are actually, pay, you know, paying close attention to the situation see right through this sort of um, uh, this sort of spectacle. And that is uh, that this you know, that this aid is nothing in comparison to what Venezuelans really need. And of course, in, in comparison with the damage that is being done uh, and will continue to be done by these economic sanctions. So the idea that the U.S., you know, is truly concerned about, you know, again, maybe there are individuals, uh, you know, individuals that I talked to from USAID and NED in the course of my research, you know, for my dissertation project. I think many of them do are concerned about issues of democracy. They want to see, uh you know, they want they don't want to see NGO leaders being targeted. They want people to have freedom of speech. They don't want to have journalists be targeted. But I think at, you know, at the at the higher levels, you know, people that are devising these programs and uh, the State Department, the National Security Council, their objectives are and they have been for, you know, uh, the last two decades were to get Chavez and now Maduro out of power. And so. Mm -hmm. You know, again, this this situation at the border, you know, I can't stress enough. I mean, it's a it's a spectacle. It's a stunt. And, you know, in some ways, if Maduro had just let the aid in, I wonder if that would have that might have just played better for the government. I mean, yeah. I don't I know how that you myself. Would, I yeah. wondered if his right. if his uh, intransigence, if, if that's the right word uh, to use here, I think, you know, with respect to not only the aid, but also 
some of the other reforms that have come around. I mean, there's no question that he would have faced a political defeat. You see uh, these so-called pink tide governments falling, you know, or being diminished in some senses all around him, you know, uh, aside from perhaps Bolivia, where it seems to still be going somewhat strong. Um, yeah. Of course, their economy was never quite quite uh, uh, trucking along in the same way as uh, a Petro state like Venezuela was. But, um, you know, in some senses, it seems like Maduro really needs to, to pump the brakes here and, and think about how he can uh, maintain the better aspects of the, you know, the Bolivarian revolution going forward in order to resolve this impasse. I'd, li- I'd like your comment on that, but let's tie this all together as we wrap up. Bernie Sanders and Ro Khanna are uh, some of the most strident and vocal anti-interventionists in uh, the U.S. Congress, which, of course, is not saying much. <laughs> uh, yeah, right. That's a relative measure, of course. Uh, Bernie right. Sanders, uh, I mean, has I, I would say foreign policy uh, was his weak weakness, his weak point in 2016. And uh, as many others have, have remarked, not only myself here, uh, I think going into 2020, I think he has the strongest and most coherent foreign policy of any of the candidates uh, that have emerged for the Democratic Party primaries thus far. Uh, Ro Khanna is championing you know, the anti-intervention in stance. Of course, he's now one of the co-chairs of the Sanders campaign, so you can't easily distinguish them at this point. But a lot of people on the left have criticized them, and I think somewhat rightly so, for having a, a kind of boneheaded or at least kind of a non-nuanced position on Maduro, quote, Maduro the dictator, which he very well may be an illiberal political leader at this point, having uh, been commi- either responsible for or committed himself a number of uh, political uh, missteps, you might say, to put it lightly. But people are criticizing Sanders and Connor right now for falling prey to the rhetoric of – the you know Mike Pence and John Bolton and even Elliot Abrams to an extent, but on the other hand, what I would always want to push back and say, yes, but Sanders and Connor are stridently anti-interventionist. What is your read on their position? They're kind of taking a both and position. Is that going to be enough going forward to stave off the worst aspects of this interventionist uh, you know uh, uh, push coming from the executive branch? Yeah, I think this is a great question. And I think you uh, laid out, you know, very nicely some of uh, what's going on here. I mean, there are I've been seeing a lot of people are quite troubled by the fact that Bernie said that, you know, uh, Maduro should accept humanitarian aid and saying, as you mentioned, that he's falling prey to sort of the discursive elements of the Trump administration. But, you know, I personally, I'm not all that troubled by Bernie saying, you know, the Maduro government should accept humanitarian humanitarian aid. You know, some are saying that this aid, these convoys from USA, that they're a Trojan horse. Okay, what does that mean? If Maduro had let these uh, trucks uh, filled with biscuits and uh, medicinal supplies come into Venezuela, that, you know, Marines were going to pop out of the convoys. I mean, I don't think that's precisely how it was going to (laughs) work. There are, you know, there's, (laughs) there's obviously a symbolic dimension, particularly if the opposition got hold of the goods and then they were distributing it. You know, obviously this has a question of, you know, who controls the state, who controls the territory, issues of national sovereignty that are obviously quite sensitive at this particular point in time when you have Maduro, who is, you know, can control the state apparatus. And then you have Guaido claiming he's the president. So obviously there's going to be this struggle over who controls the territory and uh, who controls distribution of goods and, and so on and so forth. So you know, but I think as you rightfully pointed out, uh, people like Sanders, uh, Rokana, etc., are pushing back on and very critical of U.S. military intervention. Bernie has talked about Guatemala in 1954 in Chile and talked about the ills of U.S. military intervention. So hey, he and others, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, I want to say maybe she hasn't been as outspoken, uh, Representative Omar, certainly. But you have a contingent of individuals in the U.S. government who are pushing back against U.S. military intervention. So, I mean, I guess my overall point is I don't see Bernie aligned with the Trump government. People are saying, you know, Bernie's aligned with Trump. How so? Uh, Trump is on Twitter calling for the military to overthrow the Venezuelan government. Bernie, on the other hand, is saying look at all the disastrous military intervention policies. But yeah, okay, the situation is dire and 
um, Maduro should accept humanitarian aid. So I see a big gulf there. I, I, you know, again, this is, this is, I think this goes back to these uncritical elements, um, sometimes on the left that want to collapse everything and, and put people, you know, well, Bernie now is an imperialist, I mean, and all the rest of it. I mean, you know, it would be great if Maduro accepted humanitarian aid and that if humanitarian aid got into the country, there are better ways to do it than working through U.S. aid, given its politicized nature and the context of Venezuela. But I mean, just the general idea of accepting humanitarian aid, I don't think is a big issue. And if medicinal or uh, if, if, if high energy biscuits and medicine got to the population of Venezuela, I mean, that would be good, too. If you if we're truly concerned about poor and working class Venezuelans, then, yeah, then we should want them to receive medicine and to receive a food uh, and all the rest of it. So um, I don't really I, I again, I think some are still have a surface level understanding of dynamics involving the U.S. Venezuela. And it's either if if you're not pro Maduro, then you're an imperialist. And because Bernie Sanders isn't just outright denouncing the U.S. empire as being imperialist and all the rest of it, then, you know, he's a traitor um, to, you know, the, the left. And I don't, I don't quite see it that way. I think, uh, as you pointed out uh, as well, you know, he's called for elections. I wish there was, as you pointed out, I wish that he had a more nuanced position, perhaps calling attention to the nature of USAID's assistance and perhaps talking more about some of the mechanisms that have been floated to uh, resolve this crisis, whether it be the International Contact Group, which some Euro and Latin American countries are part of, or the uh, mechanism promoted by Mexico and Uruguay to have the government in the opposition sit down. So indeed, I, I wish there was a more nuanced position coming from Sanders, but you know, I, this criticism of him being an imperialist because he said that Maduro should accept humanitarian aid and saying that he aligns with Trump, and who's calling for a straight up military overthrow of Maduro and Rubio, who's tweeting out pictures of Gaddafi is is absurd. And, you know, there needs to be more there needs to be a more nuanced understanding, too, uh, among, you know, some of these uh, individuals who are putting those ideas forward. Yeah. I mean, you know, I've, I've seen some conflations there. They're on Twitter. They're public comments. I was going to name some names, but they're out there. They're on Twitter. I don't right. mean to vilify any people. And there's people with whom I, uh, you know, have agreed with in other realms and other contexts of, uh, you know, anti-imperialism and foreign policy and even domestic policy. And these are, you know, so it's not to vilify or or, or to sort of uh, insert any more hot air into these debates than, than is necessary. But that's just to say that that you, you feel like they're sort of grappling with some context that isn't quite apparent on the surface. Because if you just read the the content of the tweets themselves and the statements themselves, um, you know they're 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 almost not objectionable at all. Aside from just the kind of shorthand that one has to use in what 140 some odd characters or whatever it is these days. <laughs> exactly. You know, I mean, to 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 yeah, it seems clear that I mean, even let's let's look within the Democratic Party. You have Nancy Pelosi uh, coming out with a statement a couple of weeks ago basically parroting the same kind of pro-sanctions, pro-tough-on-Maduro, muscular kind of hyper-aggressive you know, uh, aggressive foreign policy approach of the Trump administration. So even within the Democratic Party, you have a serious rift that is opening up between the two wings, which I think is really important. It's, it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out going forward. So for, we, you can comment on that, but one final question to kind of bring it home here. You, uh, Tim Gill, have been appointed by uh, President Sanders as <laughs> special envoy to Venezuela. How would you resolve this crisis, given that there is indeed a crisis right. um, of, of a variety of nature? You have a number of – you have a, a, a vast array of political class and uh, you know state and domestic uh, civil society forces, NGOs, all the rest of it. It's an incredibly complex situation. What would you do? To ro what would you do to roll back some of the existing, you know, things that uh, sort of determine and overdetermine the U.S. and Venezuelan relationship? And then, how would you uh, drive forward to produce a much more just and equitable outcome there? Yeah, I mean, I think in the least, you know, I would, if 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 again, if we're concerned about you know Venezuelans' health and welfare, knowing that USAID is tainted. And unilateral sort of uh, U.S. aid is has a uh, certain connotation. Then I would want to work through multilateral organizations to get aid to the country, get aid 
uh, ensure that it gets to poor populations so that if, you know, individuals have diabetes or hypertension or whatever it might be, um, that these conditions are controlled, that people have steady access to food and, you know, whatever the best way it seems to get this to individuals is multilaterally. And second, I think that it is worthwhile at this point to work towards probably a new election, one that is internationally monitored. You could have domestic, you could have international monitoring of the election. But there are serious concerns about the legitimacy of, uh, as we've talked about, of the Maduro government and the uh, system therein. So I think that an election, you know, working towards that would alleviate many of the, certainly the political crisis that's going on in the country. And so I think that that's something that uh, both the um, trying seriously, serious attempts to get aid into the country and working towards some sort of uh, resolution to the political crisis and perhaps having an election that is indeed internationally and domestically monitored would be something to work towards. Now, as far as these bigger issues um, involving USAID and OTI and National Endowment for Democracy and military intervention, you know, I think that you know, Bernie Sanders and the Democratic Socialist left, I think that a key element, and as you mentioned before, with Bernie Sanders, you know, foreign policy hasn't been his strong suit. And there's a lot of soul searching, I think, on the Democratic uh, Democratic Socialist left about what would a Democratic Socialist foreign policy look like. And I think that there's often a lot of emphasis on the socialist element that it, and we should, of course, recall, you know, socialism is an economic system, but I feel like there's not as much emphasis on the democratic end. And so I think that perhaps, you know, those in the democratic socialist left should start thinking about uh, how can, you know, what would a democratization of U.S. foreign policy look like, whether that would be some sort of citizen control over U.S. military intervention, whether it's serious discussions about what USAID and OTI um, and the NED are doing with U.S. taxpayer money, discussions about uh, U.S. military bases abroad. I mean, there's little to no accountability what's going on in these in these you know, in these agencies. I mean, they're staffed by government bureaucrats. Nobody knows who they are. Nobody knows what's going on. You have to put in Freedom of Information Act requests like I have. You get them back. It's a sea of black line redactions. It's it's not democratic. And so, you know, I think that there should be perhaps a little bit more discussion about, you know, on the Democratic Socialist left about, you know, involving how we could democratize uh, foreign policy and perhaps what would that look like. Mm-hmm. Lastly, final, final question. Juan Guaido is calling for, uh, well, all all but calling for military intervention. He leaves the military out, but he says basically intervention by any means necessary to overthrow this government. Right. Uh, and you're going to see this. It's all over the news cycle uh, coming into this week. Guaido calling for military intervention. Of course, Trump and little Marco are going to be calling for that and, and, and thumping their chests as well. It seems that one of the, the most immediate things on the horizon for leftists and progressives out there is to stop this military intervention. Among you know that demand, of course, that obvious demand is uh, you know, no military intervention in Venezuela. What are some of the other most more immediate kind of um, sloganizable <laughs> demands that the left uh, should be out there on the streets calling for? Um, yeah, I mean, in terms of, I think, ending the sanctions uh, on Venezuela, I think that that's something that individuals on the left should be talking about, you know, actually ending these sanctions on Venezuela, um, working through multilateral organizations, you know, getting rid of Elliot Abrams. And, um, you know, I think those three are pretty, you know, some of the some of the ones that initially come to mind. Yeah, the sanctions are only going to make things worse. The U.S. doesn't seem to be uh, uh, seriously concerned um, with getting food and medicine. Again, I'm sure some people are, but their behavior, what they're doing doesn't suggest that. And, you know, this Elliot Abraham situation, I think that we should um, individuals should, uh, you know, continue hammering that point uh, that this individual that you have there is this war criminal. And, you know, who knows, maybe there can be more pressure to get rid of uh, Elliot Abrams. Um, But the situation is escalating quickly. And, um, you know, I'm very I'm very interested to see what comes out today from Mike Pence as he is in he's going to be in Colombia and meeting with Guaido and they're going to be talking about what their steps are forward. And so so it'll be important to pay attention to that and then uh, and see, um, you know, what there is to respond to at the present uh, present point in time. 
Tim Gill, thanks so much for joining us. You have an edited volume coming out in the fall from Routledge. It's called Future of U.S. Empire in the Americas, Trump Administration and Beyond. It's full of a number of uh, you know commentators, academics, scholars um, with respect to foreign policy and Central and South American U.S. Empire uh, in general. It's my understanding. Uh, maybe give a quick pitch for that book. Um, I'll, I'll link to uh, some of the information online about it in the show notes. Like I said, it should be out this fall. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. The goal is to get it out by um, by the end of 2019. And so um, exactly like you said, we'll have a number of chapters dealing with U.S. foreign policy and a Trump towards a number of countries, Brazil, Venezuela, Cuba. And then we'll have some chapters as well, sort of assess, uh, looking at Trump's uh, policies on or Trump's uh, the Trump administration on a number of policies. So things like drugs, immigration, labor um, within the hemisphere. And it's sort of assessment of, you know, where are we? now in sort of relations with the U.S. and particular countries and kind of an assessment of U.S. global power. Do we see U.S. global power diminishing uh, in what respect, ideologically, militarily, economically? Um, do we see a retreat of U.S. global uh, power? Perhaps we see other countries like China or, Russian, or Russia displacing uh, the U.S. in particular places um, and par- perhaps in particular ways, ideologically or otherwise, economically, politically. So it's going to be looking at all the, these uh, sorts of questions. And like you said, bringing together some political sociologists, uh, political scientists, historians to take a look at these sorts of questions. So I'm really excited about it. And uh, I think the cha- many of the chapters are really great. And we got some uh, some some critical thinkers on board and, and uh, looking forward to getting it out. That's fantastic. It's really great to see uh, a kind of young budding cadres of intellectuals, people who are very thinking very seriously about the demands of foreign policy uh, going forward into the 21st century of, of this kind of uh, progressive and socialist experiment that we find ourselves uh, you know, launching into. Hopefully, uh, it's just the beginning of that. Um, and, you know, we'll see much more of this work emerging in the coming decades. You have a very nuanced and careful perspective. It surely will not please all of my listeners. That's but, for sure. <laughs> uh, but that, but the, the battle continues. And, uh, you know, we need to stay, as you mentioned, I think we need to stay uh, agile and nimble, you know, to in order to respond to to the atrocities that the Trump and Pence administration are going to cook up next. But uh, thanks so much for all of the context you've provided me and my audience, Tim, and let's, uh, let's stay in touch as things develop in the future. Definitely. Thanks so much, Adam. Really appreciate it. Oh, this new crazy mother...